0: You married folks out there. Do you remember when you just met your spouse, that first time you saw each other and started to interact with each other? Do you remember what that was like? Might have been awkward. You know, that first date, Wonder. you know, what's going to happen? I know with us, it was two, two introverts on a first date. We kept trying to see if the other one had talked some of you, maybe you didn't even like each other at first. I know my grandmother always said my grandfather kind of seemed like a little twerp. Eventually, as you interacted and grew, you got to know each other, grew to love one another, even like one another, got more involved with each other. You got married, you built a life together. How weird would it be to go back to the way it was on that first date now? be odd, wouldn't it? I can't go out with you. You're a married woman. You know, that kind The relationship isn't the same. It's different now. It's changed. And the same goes for parents and children. Children grow, they learn, they become more more independent. Eventually, they become adults. And parents have to allow for those changes. The way you interact with the child at 3 years old is not how you are when they're 8, when they're 14, when they're 17, when they're 25. At one point, you do everything for the child, and eventually it becomes a relationship where there's more equality between parents and children, and there's more of a friendship dynamic than there is parent-child. Our relationships change. And as we are transformed by Christ, so also do our relationships with other Christians change. We come to the incredibly short book of Philemon this morning. As we make our way through the Bible, we come to Philemon. Philemon's a hard one to find. One page, go to Hebrews, make a left. That's the easiest way to get there. And it shows this change in our relationships thanks to Jesus. It's really something of a case study in how Christians view one another, how we get along together, and how our relationships change and are changed by our relationship with Christ. Philemon is the name of a Christian in the city of Colossae. This letter would have been written and sent at the same time as the letter to the Colossians. The church even met in Philemon's house, which means he was wealthy, and we also learn in this letter, he was a slave owner. He owned slaves. Now, let me give you some historical background here, because when we talk slavery in the United States, our understanding of the institution is shaped and formed by what happened in the United States a couple hundred years ago. Roman slavery was not the same. Slaves in Rome, in the Roman Empire, made up a significant percentage of the population... They were often very well regarded. They were trusted members of the household. You see, if you were a Roman slave owner, your slaves didn't just go out and work in the fields. In fact, you might not have any fields. You might not live out on a farm somewhere. You may live in a city, and you'll still have a household full of slaves. And they will take care of the various aspects of your household, not just being your butler, but even your accountant, your personal physician. Because slaves were also artisans and teachers and more and educated slaves were prized. They were not kept ignorant. Usually if they would go out and work for somebody else, they would be paid daily wage. You would take a significant cut of it, but a good amount would still pass through to the slave. And freeing slaves was also very common back then. You wouldn't have generations and generations of them. It would not be unusual at all. For you at some point, you know, you've been very good to our household, you have your freedom. It wasn't automatic, it didn't happen in every case, but it was very far from rare. And usually these slaves also were considered not, they weren't considered mere property, they were members of your household. These were people you cared about, they weren't just machines in flesh. So there was a difference there. So when we talk about slavery, don't just switch into, oh, you know, in, into thinking American slavery. But this letter was written because one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, had escaped and found his way to Paul, who was in prison in Rome. And it seems that as Onesimus ran, he had stolen from Philemon. And while he was with Paul in Rome, Onesimus heard the gospel. Probably shouldn't be a surprise. I don't think you could have been within any distance of Paul for 30 seconds and not hear the gospel. If if you're going to hang out with Paul by the end of the first day, you know who Jesus is. And he believed and he obeyed Jesus. Onesimus is now a Christian. So Paul writes back to Philemon with a request. We're going to pick this up in Philemon 8. Now, I don't say chapter 8, there's no chapters in Philemon, it's just verses. Like I said, this one's short. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Anisimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ." Here you have Anismus. He wronged his master Philemon in two different ways. He ran away. That was illegal in the Roman Empire. Now we would look upon any slavery as an affront to human dignity. Personally, I think rightly so. But the fact is, it was not outright prohibited at any point in the Bible. It was often practiced in the ancient world. And even in the Old Testament law, there were allowances made for it. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, your holy book allows for slavery. It's not that holy. Well, let's compare biblical slavery to what was practiced elsewhere. If you look in the Old Testament law, a slave was only a slave for a certain period of time, no more than six years. Seventh year, year, <laughs> year jubilee, or... or Not your Jubilee. After seven years, you had to let them go. They could stay longer, but it was their choice. If they chose to stick around, that was up to them. And there were also rules. You you, you had to treat them a certain way. If you harmed them, you had to give them their freedom as payment. Simply put, in the Old Testament, slaves are explained that they are humans. They are people. They were Israelites. They were people that you know, God wanted you to care for. They were not mere property. And in the New Testament, when, you know, here's the Roman Empire, and we talked about how things were done then. Paul is writing to, the, to, to Christians, and he says, if you can get your, your freedom, do it. But you don't have to. You see, one, thing, one theme that you find in a lot of Paul's writings is he doesn't want, to want Christians to have a lot of obligations that distract us from following Christ. He wants us to be able to have Christ as first and foremost in our lives, not having to serve someone else or get somebody's okay or get the right time for it. He wants us to be free to serve Christ at all times, so that's why he's writing that. But at no point is it actually prohibited. But for Onesimus, the proper way for him to gain his freedom would have been for him him to buy himself out using what wages he received. He would work, he would receive some wage, not the full wage, but some, and he could save that up, buy himself out. Of course, it seems that Onesimus may not have been a real great worker for him, because Paul says, hey, before he was useless to you. You you ever have teenager? Maybe try to do some work. You tell a teenager, do some work around the house. Okay. Any of you remember doing that as a teenager? Okay, you're alive. I get a a little bit of a response there. I'm not sure anybody in first service was alive. They were all staring at me, it was weird. But you know what it's like to have somebody who's supposedly working for you and just really not? That may have been what he was like. And so finally he runs away. That's wrong number one. Wrong number two, he stole something. Doesn't say what he stole, but Paul admits, yeah, something was taken. Don't know if it was valuables. Don't know if it was money. Something that I presume would have financed his trip to Rome. But now it's up to Philemon to decide how he's going to handle things. The escaped slave is sent back with this letter. Now what? Because the ball is in Philemon's court. He has has certain legal rights that he can exercise here. He can punish the runaway. He can require restitution. But as Paul explains things to Philemon, he says, It's not about your rights. It is about your responsibilities in Christ. You see, we have rights. But we also have responsibilities. There are things we can demand. but in Christ it's not always wise to do so. We can make a stink, but that may not further the gospel. It may not make us more like Jesus. And Paul's kind of explaining that here to Philemon in this letter. And his concern is less that Philemon is able to exercise his rights over Onesimus, and it is more that there is a broken relationship that needs to be restored. And to this broken relationship, Paul writes briefly about who we become in Christ. When we're in Jesus, friends, we're somebody that we were not before. Things have changed. We become children of God, not just children of God. We are siblings in Christ. You look around in here, I see some families sitting together. You know what? Your family's bigger than just that pew. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ here together, and not just in this building. Anywhere, friends, Jesus is being praised today. We've got brothers and sisters. Some places they're praising him here in America in English. Some places they're praising him right now in Mexico in Spanish. Some places they've praised him already today in Chinese. Or other or other tongues and we every single place, friends, we have brothers and sisters in Christ. But one thing that you notice about siblings, they don't always get along, do they? I look around, a lot of you have brothers and sisters in here? Yeah, some nods, some hands. Yeah. Did you always get along perfectly with them? <laughs> no, no, because you know those siblings, they're, they, were j- they just misbehaved, didn't they? Yeah, it wasn't your fault, was it? Well, even in the body of Christ, friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes we don't act as we ought to act. We don't always treat each other as we should but we remain brothers and sisters in Christ. Our relationships, they might be strained, they might even be broken from time to time, but we remain brothers and sisters in Christ. And what Paul is writing to Philemon is what, write, what he would write to us to show grace to your Christian family. When our relationships are strained, when they're outright snapped in two, we are called to show Grace. We may have our disagreements, we may have been wronged, we may have wronged another, but we remain family in Christ, and we need to act like it. And looking at both sides of this broken relationship here in this short book, we learn how we can restore our relationships. We see what we need to know and what we need to do. Because sometimes we're on Sometimes we're the ones who've done wrong. I don't think any of us can claim to have been 100% perfect in all our dealings with every other person our entire lives. I've wronged others. Whatever the circumstances are, maybe we had a bad day, maybe we were under a lot of stress, maybe we just can't lay claim to any excuse other than our own foolishness. It happens. We wrong someone else. We say the wrong thing. We do something boneheaded. The relationship is strained or broken, and it's our fault. This is what Onesimus had done. He runs to the one person he thought he could help him. We don't know why he ran. Some have wondered, was Onesimus mistreated by Philemon at... It doesn't seem so. Paul doesn't mention it. I think Paul might have mentioned it if Onesimus had a legitimate beef here. I mean, at no point does Paul pull punches or wear kid gloves if we are in the wrong. I don't think Paul would have been sitting in Rome thinking, you know, I really need to tell Philemon to you know knock off the stupidity here. But the church meets in his house, we really can't offend him. He gives a lot. So I'm just going to let that slide. Yeah, that's not Paul. Paul doesn't care who they are, what status they have. He will crack you over the head if that's what you got coming. But he doesn't do that, which makes me think maybe that's not the case. Maybe Onesimus is at fault in this broken relationship, but he runs to Paul. Why Paul? It's not explained. Maybe he would have met Paul before. Maybe when Paul came to Colossae and started the church, maybe Philemon had met him and remembered, you know, that guy was nice to me. Maybe he'll listen. Maybe he'll help me out. Philemon, my master, seemed to, seemed to really care what Paul thought. Maybe I, I'll go to him. We don't know. We really don't know what, what Onesimus was thinking, but we know who he found when he got there. And I don't mean Paul. He goes to Rome, finds the place where Paul is under house arrest. He has discussions with him, and we don't know how long it took. Onesimus became a Christian. I guarantee you, Paul was talking about Jesus a lot. Why didn't he become Christian back home? Don't know. Some want to point the finger back at Philemon. Maybe Philemon wasn't the best example of a Christian. Well, again, you'd think Paul would call him out on it. It's possible Anisimus had a hard heart. My this fine lemon master, Guy, wants, he thinks he owns me. Nobody can own me. I'll show him. He talks about Jesus. I, I'm not going to listen to anything. Could have been that way. But when he gets to Paul, he hears the gospel, he repents, he receives, he obeys Jesus. Folks, when we're in the wrong, we need to repent and turn back to what is right. This isn't addressed to Onesimus, but we see examples in the New Testament of Christians who have gone wrong every single time. Every time they are told repent and to do right. It's never swept under the rug. They are never told, it's okay for you. You know, you've had a hard life. You've had to deal with a lot. It's okay for you to do this. You do a lot for the church. You give a lot of yourself. You've got a great ministry. You can go ahead and hate these people. It's all right for you. Folks, that happens at no point in the New Testament. Every single time you see a Christian out of line in the New Testament, they're told, you get back in line. You do what you ought to be doing. Look, what are we, who, we are called by Jesus' name. We're supposed to be like Christ. If we're not being like Christ, we need to knock it off and be like Christ. It's simple. But there's a difference between simple and easy. We know we ought to be like Jesus. Jesus. But if it was easy, anybody could do it. We wouldn't have letter after letter in the New Testament telling us to be like Jesus if it was natural for us to be like Jesus. We have a broken relationship here, but the situation isn't unsalvageable relationships don't have to remain broken. See, our problem is we don't understand why pride is one of the deadly sins, so we say. Because sometimes when we do, when we do wrong, we dig in. We harden our hearts, we set our faces, and we say, well, I, I don't care if that's right or wrong. That's who I am. You've got to deal with it. It's who I am. And we stand on our pride and we snap those relationships like a twig because we don't want people to think that we're not perfect. Which is really silly, you know? Because we we're here in the church, we come to Christ. Why? Because we've sinned, right? We know we've done wrong how silly is it for the, us to then say well i don't want i don't want to say i'm sorry i don't want to i don't i don't want to repent because then people will think that i done wrong well look we all do wrong okay i'm not sure any of us has a perfect day on our on our schedule where we look back and say wow i never put a foot wrong in thought or in deed or in word at all that last tuesday Weren't you in a coma then? Yes, but what's that have to do with it? It's like the prayer, Lord, I've had a good day so far. I've not cussed. I haven't thought bad about my fellow man. I have not lusted. I have not been greedy. I have not been gluttonous. I have not been proud. Lord, I have followed you very well so far. But Lord, I'm about to get out of bed and today's going to get harder from there. Let's be honest folks, we're not perfect. That shouldn't cost us any pride to admit the truth. And rather than stand on our pride and insist on our infallibility and remain apart, remain apart, we need to turn from our error. It happens, we make mistakes, but we don't have to become our mistakes. That's why we are offered forgiveness. You done something wrong? Repent. Do better. Try to do better. you know, not going to say you're never going to make that mistake again. Sometimes it takes a while. But be sincere. But maybe we're not in the wrong. Maybe we're not an Maybe we're the wronged party because sometimes we're Philemon, aren't we? The substance of this letter is Paul reasoning with his friend Philemon. He's asking him to receive Onesimus back with forgiveness and with grace. Now in our culture, we give a victim certain moral standing. If someone has wronged you, well, now you've got to get out of jail free card. If someone has wronged you, they have no standing before you. They can't come to you and say any, say anything or hold their head up. No, you get to stand there and be like, "Grovel, worm! You know, You, you have wronged me. I am the victim here. That's our culture." But the New Testament subverts that attitude. And we are reminded that we have received grace for our sins from God. We may not have wronged somebody in this situation, but we've wronged people in other situations. We've wronged the creator of the universe. He had grace on us. He extended forgiveness to us. And he expects us to do likewise. As we have been forgiven, we have a duty to forgive. The Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. The parable of the unmerciful servant. Man, it's like Jesus was trying to make a point to us, wasn't it? And I do want to say this, when we forgive someone, that's not giving them carte blanche to victimize us further. If somebody steals from you, it doesn't mean you have to give them a key to your house and codes to the safe. And passwords to your bank account. The The goal here in forgiveness is to restore the relationship. If they are sincere... And they understand it. You know, it's, you, you, we're not talking about somebody that comes up and does that fake, oh, I'm sorry, now you have to forgive me. No, they're truly. we're talking about true repentance. Folks, we need to be open to that restoration. And Philemon now has a new relationship with his runaway slave. As Paul points out, he says, oh, you're getting him back. But not as a bondservant, you're getting him back as a brother. This transforms that relationship dynamic. What was once master and slave is now brothers in Christ. And here is why we say that even though the New Testament does not prohibit slavery, it sows the seeds of the destruction of that institution. How can you own a brother or sister in Christ? Here is someone for whom Jesus died just like you. They are every bit as valuable to God as you are. You are equal status before the throne of God. Redeemed sinners, raised to be children of the Most High, brothers and sisters in Christ, how can you own one of them? That's hard, isn't it? Downright impossible. That's why everywhere Christianity has gone, the institution of slavery has fallen apart. Yeah, sometimes some Christians have tried to defend it. Well, like I said, we Christians, we're not perfect. Sometimes we are gloriously imperfect. But that relationship is going to be so transformed, it's going to be really impossible for Philemon to treat Onesimus as that escaped slave. You see, his obligation, Philemon's obligation, it's not repentance. It is to recognize when that repentance has occurred in his new brother, Onesimus. Because he, Philemon has been forgiven of his sin. He ought to forgive Onesimus. Extend that grace that had been extended to him. See, Paul, is, Paul starts to lay it on thick here. Oh, man, Paul is the master of a guilt trip. You can tell he had a Jewish mother here because... 17, 18, 19, I mean, he just really starts stacking it. Well, Philemon, you're getting him back. I would love to keep him with me. He's a great help to me here in prison. But you I sent him back to you because that's the right thing to do. just keep in mind, I'd love to have him back. And then he talks about that whatever, whatever Onesimus stole, he says, That's, I'll, I'll repay it. If, if you need restitution, I'll repay it. The terms that Paul uses here in verse 19, I write this in my own hand, I will repay it. That is a legal term in the Roman Empire, or was. He is assuming that legal debt. He said, if you need to be repaid, I'll repay it, but never mind that you owe me yourself, because, you know, you heard the gospel from me, Philemon, and you'd still be destined for hell and destruction, if not for my efforts, but I'll repay if you need it. Like I said, he's laying it on thick. If you read that and you start to chuckle, it's okay. Because he's saying to him. Philemon, we can let this go. When we are wronged, when the person repents and apologizes and asks for grace, how do we respond? What do we do? Do we revel in our hurt? Do we claim superiority? Do we say, oh no, you get to dance, worm. You know, do, do we hold it over their heads like that? Or do we remember that we have also been shown grace for our own failures? Paul reminding Philemon of his salvation and how it came about is there for a reason, friends. Each and every one of us in here has received grace from God. Each and every one of us in here was not worthy of the salvation that God gave us. It cost God his very own son. We had done nothing to deserve that. But God did it anyway. So we have no standing here to lord it over others. No, in Christ, we learn that we are connected. We are brothers and sisters. Friends, we are. Family, And like any family, there's going to be issues. We're going to offend each other. We're going to hurt each other. But a healthy family looks beyond the hurt. It focuses not on the pain, but on the way forward from there. Okay, I may have had an issue with this person. You know, okay, I licked my wounds and all of that. But what are we going to do now? Are we going to have separate camps at the family reunion? Oh, don't go stand on their side. family reunion, not a gang war, okay? And sometimes we Christians can forget this. And we'll draw up lines and we'll say things like, well, if you sit on this side of the sanctuary, then you're on my side. If you sit on that side of the sanctuary, you're on their side. Folks, I've heard of that happening. (laughs) That's not an illustration out of nowhere. That actually occurs at times. How silly is that? We've got to look beyond it. We've got to say, look, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to work together, and that means we've got to get past this. We have to get past our pride. That's really what this comes down to. One has the pride that doesn't want to repent. The other has the pride that doesn't want to forgive. You knock that pride out of the way, and you get a restored relationship. Remember that prayer of Christ in John chapter 17. The night he was about to be arrested, he knew what was coming. Before the next day was out, he's going to be nailed to a cross, dying slowly. And he prays, Lord, let them be one. Our unity, friends, it's already been established. It exists already. We don't have to create our unity. He has done that on the cross. We just have to preserve it by showing grace to one another. Because we are part of a family. We are part of the family of God. I look in here I see a lot of brothers and sisters. Physically, we don't look alike. Spiritually, we don't Each of us has the thumbprint of God on our very souls. He has redeemed us, forgiven us, and adopted us. Let us preserve that family by showing grace to one another. Yeah, if you're in the church long enough, somebody's going to make you angry because we all have our hot buttons. Somebody, without thinking about it, is going to make you mad. You are going to get riled up, and you are going to want to write letters to these people, talk on the phone to those folks. You're going to want to draw up sides. Don't do it. Put the pride away. Remember, you have been given grace. Or maybe you get somebody good and mad, you didn't mean to do it, you know that you'd wronged them, you did something boneheaded, don't dig in, go to them, talk to them, say, I am sorry. I'll do my best not to do it again. Friends, that's what God wants of his family. That's how we keep our unity. That's how we keep our relationships. You go out from here, everywhere you go, there's broken relationships. This ought to be the place where we put them back together. Stand with me, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for you have given us your son, Jesus. And in him, Lord, we are restored. We find our forgiveness. We find that grace. Lord, you you make it possible for us to show grace to each other. Lord, help us to dodge that pride, to put it aside, to get rid of it, so that we can be restored to each other. Because we know what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness, the grace we find in Jesus. May we live that out together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.